0: Such a good song to sing, especially today as we head into Ecclesiastes chapter 3, a very helpful preparatory kind of song to sing, a very hard song to sing, if you think about those words, all kinds of days to sing, blessed be your name. Really? We're going to wrestle with that today, so if you have a Bible... Go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You'll find Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, closer to the middle of your Bible most likely. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Some familiar words are in this chapter, but we're going to consider the whole of it as we move through uh, the message this morning. Right now, we're just going to read somewhat at the heart of what we're going to find in this chapter, and that's going to be verses 9 through 13, but we will consider the whole Chapter together today. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, we certainly need your grace at work in us by the power of the Spirit to help us to understand and to apply to our hearts and to our lives your truth. God, would you be glorified and would your people be strengthened? And for those who are with us who may be far from you or have hearts that are hardened toward you, God, would you do a redeeming and rescuing and drawing near work? So be with us as we consider this passage, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. The Oscar-winning adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men ended with a mystifying reflection. Retired Sheriff Ed Tom Bell told his wife about two dreams upon which he was deeply complimented, contemplating. The first dream was about the failure to stop the bad guy, to bring about justice, and to recover what was lost, which transpired over the course of the book or the movie. The second dream was different, less clear in its meaning. Sheriff Ed Tom Bell saw his father riding a horse in the dark, carrying something of an old lantern with a small flame. In the dream, his father passed the sheriff by on his journey, not saying a word to his son. Father just kept on riding out further into the cold, dark night with his small light. Then the closing words of the movie, just before the screen fades to black, the sheriff shares this reflection. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead and he was fixing to make a fire somewhere out there in all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he would be there and then I woke up. Sheriff Ed Tom Bell reflected throughout the unfolding of the story of No Country for Old Men, how time marches on, how seasons in life just keep going, and how the senselessness of the world seems to increase in its senselessness. There is the struggle with the unrelenting nature of time and the confounding senselessness of the world and the struggle to how in the world are we going to make sense of both. The closing reflection on his second dream, the sheriff ends what many consider to be a note of hope, though this seems fuzzy to many viewers. The book, however, closes with no such hope, making the film adaptation's interpretation all the more interesting. It's as if the Cohen brothers anticipated their audience wanting some sort of hope at the end of a senseless story, even if it was fuzzy. I say all that because doesn't that sound an awful lot like Ecclesiastes? <laughs> Here we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to consider... Again, some familiar words, but we've been working through this series with a tagline living well in a frustrated world. I believe that's the heart question of Ecclesiastes. How can you live well in a world that frustrates so much? And as we do that and as we wrestle with that, my hope is to keep coming back to the singular hope is that living well in a frustrating world keeps the heart centered on God. If we want to go about living well in a world that frustrates us so much, we must be a people who keep our hearts centered on God. That We don't lose our bearings in a world with the unrelenting march of time. And that we don't lose our bearings in a senseless world. We must keep the heart centered on God. Ecclesiastes 3 works through some observations on life, many of which we can agree with. But I want us to wrestle with those observations and know that these are, first thing we'll consider, they're observations of a frustrating world from under the sun. The observations perspective is coming from under the sun and it's looking at a frustrating world. And then we want to counter some of the conclusions that our preacher reaches with some reflections on living well from above the sun. So these reflections that we'll close with are coming from above the sun and they're going to help us live well in a frustrating world. That's where we're going. This was a hard message to prepare. There were many things to corral and to contain. And so hopefully we'll get through this before your hunger ends my sermon, right? First thing is that we want to consider is observations of a frustrating world from under the sun. There are two observations that we find, two big main ideas that we find here in chapter three. One is life does not make sense. Life doesn't make sense. And then secondly, life is unfair. Have you ever felt either one of those? Life doesn't make sense or life is unfair. If you're if you have a pulse in here this morning, I'm confident no matter your age, you have felt both of those things. Life doesn't make sense and life is unfair. So let's consider first life doesn't make sense. We begin chapter 3 with a poem on time. It's a famous poem for many reasons. But let's Take a minute to read it and get our heads around it, and it's found in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, Really, two different words being used, time and and seasons. But really, they're very similar in their dynamic. And together, they give the idea of how life is ordered and structured and fixed to appointed seasons. So when they're reading this, a, a time for these things, it's not so much about specific times and specific dates, It's more about the conditions and character of such times. We we do this. For those who are married, no matter how long you've been married, at some point you've said this phrase, and this phrase kind of helps us understand what the poem is looking at with respect to time and seasons. You've said, when we were first married. When we were first married. You're not thinking of a specific date and and time. You're not thinking of May 15th, 1999. That's not coming into your head when you say when we were first married, but you are thinking of that season of life in which you were young in your marriage. Usually, you think back on that fondly. You had nothing, but it felt like you had everything. That kind of stuff. You were broke, poor, but yet you were rich because you were freshly married and in love. We usually think of it in that way. Well, here, we're finding this poem is really talking about the rhythm and the rehearsal and the ongoing march of time, the things that come and the things that go, and that everything has a place and a season. So that's this poem's big overarching picture and so there's really no reason to overcook the groupings that are in there. There's been much ink spilt on that. And, and that's not what the preacher, our person that we're going on this journey with in Ecclesiastes, he's not doing that. He's taking the big picture of what this poem is reinforcing about the nature of time. And he's focused on that big picture. So it's not to say that the groupings don't matter. They do in God's word but it's the big picture of what's being conveyed about time. And so the poem represents a traditional and accepted observation of life. And it's from there that the preacher launches into his observations and his conclusions. And we find those in verses 9 through 15. Life doesn't make sense, so enjoy what you can. That's the preacher's response to this sort of traditional view of the way that time marches on. Life doesn't make sense, so enjoy what you can. He asks a key question, makes two observations, and reaches two conclusions in these few verses. First, the key question. It's found in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? It's a very familiar question if you've been with us in the few weeks that we've been in Ecclesiastes. We've had it each week. This is the third message and the third time the question has popped up. It's the key question to the whole book. It's what he's after to answer. We found it in Ecclesiastes 1.3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? We find it again in Ecclesiastes 2.22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Both these earlier questions, these earlier stated questions, were answered. They were answered in early chapter 2 and immediately following that second question in in 2.22. They were answered with, you can't gain ultimate, but you can enjoy what you get. That's essentially how he's been answering this question. He's looking and shooting for for the moon, but he's coming up short, and he's saying, well, that's as good as it gets. That's been his, his answer along the way. And then now, in light of the rhythm and appointed order of life in this world, he asks it again. He says, what can we gain in light of the structure of life? How then can we live well, he wonders. And he makes two observations. One theological, one very practical. Two observations found in verses 10 and 11. Let's look at verse 10. The observation is that God set it up. Verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. His first observation is that he acknowledges that God has put in place the seasonal rhythm of life in this ordered and structured world. God put it in place. But as we see from the second observation, that truth, which should bring tremendous relief brings no relief at all. No relief at all. Because the second observation is, we can't figure it out. God set it up, but we can't figure it out. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now this is a very fascinating verse. You can leave that verse up there for a a moment or two that we kind of take that in. There are a couple of big things that are being stated in this verse. But what we find here ultimately is that we are designed to know how this all works but are unable to figure it out. Isn't that just... Do you feel that? Do you feel that sometimes when you get your furniture from Ikea? It's designed... And yet, it's so hard sometimes to figure it out. Well, there are a couple of things that we need to draw out, first of all, in this verse. First of all, you see the word for beautiful. Beautiful. Um, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, the word there for, that is translated beautiful in this translation that I'm preaching from, it does mean that word. But it's interesting. It means beautiful when discussing something physical like a person, place, or thing. The same word when discussing a concept like what the preacher is wrestling with, time, seasons, the order and structure of life, it actually means appropriate. Appropriate. And so when you look at verse 11, you think, and he has made everything appropriate in its time. The preacher is recognizing that God has put everything into place. He's seeing that God has put it in place. Then that second statement is that we find that he puts eternity in the hearts of us. Eternity into the hearts of man. Now, this is very important. Remember, please remember, the preacher is looking at life and living it out from an under-the-sun perspective. And if you recall from when we began the series, an under-the-sun perspective is not accounting for God in that perspective. It's not thinking bigger picture, bigger horizon. It's it's looking at life from a very man-centered, human experience, a word that we could use, secular view of life. So many times it will make correct observations, but then struggle in terms of reflections and conclusions. So it's missing the big picture. So when we think of the preacher from under the sun, speaking of this eternity in heart, it may not be the thing that you read, you who are trusting in God, thinking about God, wanting to live life, looking at it from God's perspective would be thinking. It's not so much about what comes after life, but more to do with understanding the complex big picture of life. Meaning, God wired in us the longing to know how does this life work and how does my life fit into it. So verse 11 is really a, a picture of the preacher with a big picture longing he wants to know how this all works and how and then yet at the same time an existential crisis. How do I fit in this? Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that in your life, in the seasons of your life that the, the reason why we were singing I 'm so thankful that the worship team had picked that is that there are seasons in life when there's good in our lives, and then there are seasons where our lives are marked with the road of suffering. And and so when you think about life, are there times in your life in which you've wrestled and longed to know the big picture? What in the world is God doing? While at the same time having an existential crisis, what's it doing to me? I think we can relate here. I think these words can Hit our hearts. I think if we're honest, which I hope you see Ecclesiastes is helping us be honest, we can find some relatability here. Problem though is that under the sun, perspective doesn't consider a horizon above it, beyond it, beyond this life, and is only really ultimately concerned about what can be gained under the sun now. So he's asking the right kinds of questions but he's asking them with a very low ceiling. Very low ceiling. The lower the ceiling, when you look at these big questions of life, the more claustrophobic life will feel. The more of a struggle it will be. The more of frustration will be the sound and the feel. In so doing, in these two observations that the preacher is making. God set it up, but we can't figure it out. The preacher observes that God established this world and is the only one who knows how it all fits together. So think with me real quick. A little kid's kaleidoscope toy. I don't know if they make those kinds of things anymore. But you put your eye to it and you do this little crank or a little turn, and inside that little toy is this crazy image and colors and shapes sort of folding in over each other. It's like for some of you younger folk who probably don't know what the kaleidoscope toy is, toy is it's like getting stuck into Doctor Strange multiverse madness kind of routine where it's just folding in in and over itself. And so you're looking at it and you, you turn it, and, it and, and the images move in a pattern and a rhythm, but yet it's so complex. Now imagine that same kaleidoscope toy, and you're not holding it and turning the crank. You're actually trapped inside it. You're inside the kaleidoscope. God's the one with the, with the crank and the handle, and he's turning it. That's the preacher's perspective. It would be disorienting, wouldn't it? And maybe we feel that way too. Because now we consider his conclusions in light of being trapped in the kaleidoscope of time. Two conclusions. Enjoy what you can, because you can't change it. Enjoy what you can, because you can't change it. How does an under-the-sun perspective respond to the observations about life and time? Enjoy what you can. It's like the poem represents to the preacher seasonal frustration. But there's constant seasonal frustration. And if you're able to enjoy good things in the life, then do so. Then do so. Again, the preacher is maybe protecting his heart because if you aim small, you miss small because if you aim big and miss, well, there's a whole lot of frustration and regret and failure awaiting. Second conclusion is because you can't change it. Oh, I didn't even read the verses. I'm sorry. (laughs) So let's look at first conclusion. So sorry about that. I just got caught up into my notes. Enjoy what you can in verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all this life. This is God's gift to man. This is it. As good as it gets, enjoy it. And then the second conclusion is because you can't change it. And that's verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 said, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. And under the sun perspective says what God does is so far removed from us that it's pointless to try and figure it out and alter it for our lives. God is behind the rhythms and the seasons of life, and in this sense, we can't figure it out and we can't change the frustration. From an under-the-sun perspective, life does not make sense. It does not make sense, and it also seems very unfair. Life is unfair. Life is filled with so many kinds of contradictions, basically good luck. Good luck with that as you go about living it out. Again, we find two observations, but this time one conclusion. The first observation in life is unfair is that the frustrating world that we live in is filled with injustice. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every week work. While the preacher rightly observes the order of this world, he's confounded by the injustice of it. He looks around and he sees things are not out as they should be. There's something wrong. The script has been flipped. And if God is over it all and behind it all, then why all the injustices? He wrestles with these observations that he sees in this frustrating world. Just like how we can't fit, figure out how all this time stuff fits together, we also can't figure out how God will someday, maybe, deal with the righteous and the wicked. The preacher is using the same language to discuss the seasons as he is discussing God's involvement with injustice, it's unknown to him. He can't figure it out. Life seems so unfair. The second, like a second observation in light of the frustrating world is filled with injustice, is that our lives end in death. Verses eighteen through twenty-one. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see what they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows? whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. He takes this exercise a step further and says, we are all going to die, and we have no idea what happens. Then, so when that death comes, basically we aren't all that much better off than the animals. The preacher can't figure out the totality of life or overcome the frustrations of this world or make sense of the injustices or make sense of death And it comes to the end saying, who knows? No matter how you live, you're going to die. This very sentiment calls into question the book of Proverbs, which was also written by Solomon in a different period of his life, younger in his days. And Proverbs is saying, no, it does matter. (laughs) It does matter how you live. And so now, here later in his life, after his heart had been turned away from God, turned away from above the sun, he says, No, it doesn't matter. It certainly serves as a warning for us to keep our hearts centered on God because this is a frustrating world. Now, there's one conclusion that he has, and that's verse 22. Verse 22 Good luck with what you got is essentially. The conclusion. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? In light of the senselessness of this frustrating world, make the most of what you have now. Because with the uncertainty of death from an under-the-sun perspective, the emphasis is to enjoy your life now to enjoy your life now. Now, these observations, I think many of us, most of us, in some measure, can agree with, actually. We can actually agree with these observations. We can see all of the things that the preacher is seeing. We may even have experienced with some of the same crisis that the preacher is experiencing. And so we can't just throw his observations away as if they're worthless because he's observing this world that's broken by sin and it is frustrating. But his conclusions are limited and flawed and they fail because they come from under the sun. And so it is our job as we wrestle with Ecclesiastes, a book that helps keep us honest and hopeful because it's it's working and training our hearts to look at the complexities and challenges of life in a frustrating world from above the sun perspective. And so let's make a few quick reflections on living well from above the sun. How do we go about making sense of these same observations but doing so from above the sun? Well, three Reflections for us to wrestle with, to acknowledge, and to think carefully about in light of our own lives, in light of our own observations of the same things, and maybe our own struggles around them. The first is this it's and this is great. There's some freedom here. Yes, life can be frustrating. You're not crazy. good things can buckle under the weight of ultimate expectations stuff doesn't go as it attend, as we think it should go life doesn't go as we hope it should go a believer can go through life and feel like it is frustrating i'm confident in being able to say that because there's a psalm that chip actually had referenced leading into his prayer, which we didn't touch base on, so you all better be paying attention. (laughs) This is Psalm 73. If you were to open up to Psalm 73 and read the first 15 verses or so, you would think the Ecclesiastes preacher is writing the psalm. Psalm 73, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's looking at life. It's frustrating. It's not going as it should be. He feels like it's unfair. Then again in verses 12 and 13. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You're like, it's the preacher from Ecclesiastes. How is he writing a a song to be sung at church? What's going on here? He's looking at life. It is frustrating. It's unfair. It doesn't make sense. He's struggling. The psalmist makes some of the same startling observations. And is about to go down that slippery slope of the preacher, but doesn't. We'll consider why in a moment, but I just want to start there first as an encouragement to us. That's right. This is an encouragement. Life can be frustrating. And that's okay. That's okay, and it's not going to make sense, and you can't fix it. That's okay. That's hard, but it's okay. We're going to come back to Psalm 73 in a second here, but I want to deviate over to the New Testament for our second reflection from above the sun as an encouragement to us. Just as life can be frustrating, life can be enjoyed. Yes, this life in this world that's frustrating, that sometimes doesn't make sense, that sometimes seems unfair, yes, it can be enjoyed. It can be enjoyed it can be enjoyed when we move thinking from gain to gift. There's a big shift that happens in that, and it's found in james one seventeen James one seventeen says this above-the-sun perspective on life. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, if you read that verse and you think the main point of the verse is, yeah, there are good things. You're missing it. You're missing it. The good thing is that God's Character and nature never changes. And what do we know about the character and the nature of God is that He is gracious and good and great and glorious. So when He's allowing things into our lives, things that are good to be enjoyed, hard in which it grows us up in our faith, All of it from a good and great and glorious and gracious God is good and to be enjoyed. Life can be frustrating. But from above the sun, life can be enjoyed even with the frustrations, because it's a reliance on the nature and character of God not in the nature and character of the gift or the gain or the worldly pleasure. Now, let's close the loop on Psalm 73. Our third reflection from above the sun. In light of a world that doesn't make sense and seems unfair, yes, life can be frustrating, but life can be enjoyed. And thirdly, what makes sense to both of those statements Life is lived well with God. It is well lived and lived well with God. So that psalmist in Psalm 73 was wrestling with the same observations and crisis as the preacher, wrestling with them, sounding very similar to him until a very crucial moment. Verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 73. But then I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. There he is again. Sounds like a preacher from Ecclesiastes. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until he went above the sun in fellowship, in communion with God. In a saving relationship because God is gracious to weary, worn-down sinners such as us sinking under a frustrating world that doesn't make any sense and seems very unfair. And yet God... Enters down into our muck and mire, our mess, and he scoops us up and he rescues us because he's kind and he's gracious and he's good and he's accomplishing these things in our lives. We're easily forgotten. Someday we will be forgotten. But God hasn't forgotten us because of his grace and of his mercy. He welcomes us in to fellowship with him through the saving work of his son Jesus and the rescuing, or the applying work of the Spirit. The observations that the preacher and the psalmist are making are not necessarily wrong. But any conclusion that doesn't come from a trusting in a gracious God who is merciful to sinners in an above-the-sun perspective will only lead to frustration and ultimately failure. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, I was Ecclesiastes. Oh, but there's more. Psalmist continues, in light of that shift, in light of that above the sun perspective, and and says some things that work back into the daily aspects of life in a frustrating world that doesn't make sense and seems unfair. Verses 25 and 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Your life may be nothing but difficulties. For however many more days, lungs are filled with air and your heart beats. It may be a constant struggle for you. Yes, that might be your lot. So you might be able to say, my flesh and my heart, they fail just about every day. But God is the strength of my heart. Not the changed perspe- the changed situation, not, a, not an improved experience of things in this life? No. God is the strength of my heart. God, where there's no variation or shadow due to change, is the strength of my heart. God who is gracious and good great and glorious, invites me into fellowship with him. God is the strength of my heart. And borrowing a word from our Ecclesiastes preacher, my portion forever. Life from an above-the-sun perspective, can honestly say, yes, this life can be frustrating. It can be enjoyed. And whether it's frustrating or enjoyed, it is lived well and well-lived with God. When we see gift over gain, we find our means to enjoy the portion forever that rests in the nature and character of God and His grace. So yes, like Sheriff Ed Tombell, life can mystify us. It can frustrate us. It can leave us feeling empty and cynical and restless. Yet the same things that mystify and frustrate can train our hearts to go into the sanctuary of God and to fellowship with Him where our hearts are centered and settled and our lives are equipped to be well lived. Don't let the seasonal frustration or the senselessness of this world grip you so tightly that you can't see above the horizon. No, friends, if your hope and your trust is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would find a home in our hearts, That it would do good work, bear good fruit, fruit of faith and hope and trust in you. The kinds of things that give way to a life that is stabilized in a frustrating world that doesn't make sense and oftentimes seems unfair. God, would you help us in that? We pray and we plead that we would know that a well-lived life is lived well with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.